All right, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven. We continue our study, and uh, we are in t- verses twenty-three through twenty-six today. So, Hebrews chapter eleven, verses twenty-three through twenty-six, and this is God's word. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, when I was a single guy uh, in the 80s, I went to some thing on a Saturday with some people. I don't even remember what it was, but there was a guy there uh, who had a Corvette, and uh, he was kind of a gold chain guy and had a Corvette, you know? And... um, and so he was talking about his Corvette, and I was like, oh, how cool. And, uh, and uh, so he lets, he lets me take a ride in it. I'd never met this guy before. He lets me take a ride in this Corvette. And so we're out on I-240. I'm with him. He's got kind of the, he looked like Gene Simmons a little bit, you know? And so we're out on I-240, and uh, we're going about, you know, 82 miles an hour or so in this Corvette. And let me tell you, a Corvette, it sounds real serious. You know, it sounds a lot of commotion. It's like, I can go fast. I want you to know it, you know? And the guy, the owner guy goes, he goes, she loves to be opened up. Why don't you go ahead and stomp on it? And I was like, okay, bam, and I stomped on it. And guess what? She loves to be opened up. <laughs> I mean, uh, we got to 98 miles an hour really fast, and the car was, you know, just lets you know it's got all kinds of power. And my whole point in saying all that is this. Had I never stomped on it, I would never have known that all these Corvettes all over town have such power under the hood, but they really, really do. I stomped on it, and uh, I was able to know how strong it was. Well, I open with that uh, cheesy illustration because of this main idea for the passage. Tests of faith show God to be bigger than your, ex- uh, than your circumstances. It's kind of like when you have to step on it when you have to really trust God, when you have to put him to the test in your own life, then all of a sudden you realize that he's sufficient. Now, of course, uh, he is bigger than your life. It's true. But you understand that he's bigger than life when your faith is tested and uh, he is allowed to open up in your life. You find out things about him that otherwise not, might not be known. All right, so that's our main idea as we navigate this passage. Let's look at our first point, which is an atmosphere of animated faith. Uh, Look at verse 23. Uh, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Now we see right away that the spotlight of the scriptures shines on Moses' parents for just a spell. 
Now, really, the topic is Moses, but it shines on his, his parents. Now, uh, an easy, quick question would be is to say, well, you know, you got all these by faith. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Abraham did this. Here we are, um, uh, you know, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and uh, uh, Joseph. Uh, and here we are with Moses. By faith, Moses. Now we're on Moses, and all of a sudden, his parents are in there. Why does it say, by faith, Moses, when he was born? Why does it say, Moses' parents? Well, um, an easy answer is this. Uh, the scripture writers, no scripture writer who is, who's done any of the scriptures, who's been used of God to pen the scriptures, no scripture writer sets out to write a historical textbook for school. Nowhere in the scriptures is anybody trying to do that, even in the gospels, even in historical narrative, in, in, uh, in uh, like say Joshua or First and Second Kings or, or the Psalms or whatever. Um, no scripture writers trying to write a clean, concise, uh, chronological, uh, every, every number perfect. I mean, they round up all the time and they list cities and they list genealogies as they, as they will. And the reason they do that is they're not trying to write a strict chronological history. They're trying to write a redemptive history. The, all of the scriptures. And it doesn't matter what the genre is. You know that the, the Bible is broken down into different genres of literature. Um, by the way, is the Bible literature? Yes, but it's not merely literature. See, that's what people will do. That's what, that's what non-believers will say, is they'll say, oh yeah, that's literature. Oh, the Hebrew poetry, yes, very fascinating, should be studied. Uh, yes, oh, what a wonderful a book of antiquity. It's not merely literature, but Christians, it is literature. That's very important for your understanding of it because sometimes the Bible writes using um, a narrative, okay, which is telling the story of what happened. But you know, even in the narratives, there's poetry included in there. Uh, there's uh, prophecy included in there. And then sometimes the Bible writes in poetry. So if you open up Ecclesiastes or the Psalms, you'll see written th- things in written in poetic form. And yet, even though it's written in poetry, there's still prophecy in there too, isn't there? And how about this? How about prophetic writings? Prophetic writings, you know, um, uh, the prophets, the minor prophets, even in those things, there are things that are often poetic. And then in apocalyptic literature, um, things like the second half of Daniel and, and parts of Ezekiel and, and uh, the book of Revelation and so on. Um, let's take the book of Revelation. It's epistolary. It's an epistle. It's, an, it's a letter that's sent out, but it's also apocalyptic in nature. But the goal of all those scripture writers, no matter what the genre of literature their goal is to write a redemptive account. And I would say it's, it's more uh, story than history. It's more um, uh, a spelling out of what God is doing and is continuing to do. Uh, that means that the whole created universe is pointing somewhere, and what it's pointing to is the exaltation of uh, Jesus Christ. So back to the text. Why does it say by faith Moses uh, when, it, when it's, it's talking about his parents in verse 23? Well, the answer is uh, he started writing this way in a very obvious way. It's a, it's a continuation of the redemptive storyline. Um, in fact, if you, uh, you don't have to turn there, but let me just flip to chapter one, verse one of Hebrews. I mean, here's, how, here's the way it starts. The, the writer of Hebrews goes, long ago... At many times and in many ways, I mean, that sounds like the beginning of an epic story, you know, like Lord of the Rings. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir 
And then the story unfolds, and he starts talking about uh, Christ's supremacy to other prophets and to Moses and to uh, other priests and, uh, and so on. And it goes on and on. And here we have this description of faith. And now, now in chapter 11, it's by faith, this person lives exemplary. By faith, this person lives in an exemplary way. Uh, and up till now in chapter 11, it's been about Abraham. Abraham and everything that's led up to Abraham. So that's been the, the, the goal of the writer of Hebrews is to, is to bring us to Abraham and now we move to a different one, a different um, uh, chapter, a different category in the, in the story of, of redemption, okay? So Abraham, he's been called the father of all believers and that's why you have the little kid song, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, Father of all believers. We would all look to Abraham and say that he's the father of all believers. In fact, um, you don't have to turn, but... Um, Here's what the Apostle Paul says about it. He says, um, yeah, listen, he says, um, oh, Galatians. Yeah. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Uh, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So he's saying that about Christ, but then he goes on to say this. Um, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so now you see why I go back to Genesis 12, 15, and 17 over and over and over again. And I dare say if you ever go to another church and they don't go to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 over and over and over again, you might be in a place that doesn't understand the history of redemption and the story of grace. Um, And so today in the passage, the leadership focus changes. We're not so much on Abraham as we have moved on to Moses. And Moses now is actually an agent in the story. All right, he's a player in the story. Um, the uh, age of Moses is when God gives the law. The age of Moses is when God establishes a governmental system for the people of Israel. The age of Moses is when there is a, a, uh, a way of worship instituted whereby people can come and, and fellowship with Yahweh as he dwells in their midst. God also used Moses to lead uh, his people out of slavery in Egyptian captivity into, toward, uh, up to the promised land. Um, and so to a Jew, no one was greater than Moses. Um, in uh, Galatians 3.5, it says, Moses was faithful, excuse me, Hebrews 3.5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Christ is a son, but Moses is a servant. But the point is, to, to a Jew, Moses was the biggie. No one was greater than Moses. I mean, he was the father of the nation Israel. And so all that's set up to say, we should pause in wonder uh, over what the writer of uh, Hebrews is doing here. I mean, it really is just profound. The writer of Hebrews is a pastor. He is pastoring. You know who he's pastoring? Hebrews. He's writing the book of Hebrews because he's pastoring to the Hebrews. He's pastoring to the Jewish Christians. He's pastoring to believers in Christ in the early church who are under a lot of duress. And what's so amazing, just to get the idea here, is that Moses is being used as an example 
for Christians who are tempted to abandon Christ and go to instead what? The law of Moses. That's, that's the great pressure. The great pressure is, okay, Christians, listen, keep your Jesus. It's okay, keep your Jesus. Sad story, nice guy, roamed around uh, and all that. Uh, keep your Jesus, that's fine. But also keep that, uh, try as hard as you can to be a goody two-shoes. Keep that going too. Um, the default to the law of Moses. Um, and, um, and let me turn real quick. Um, this, is in, uh, this is in Deuteronomy 18. Yeah, check this out. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. A few verses later in, in uh, Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That was, that's what's told to Moses. He's saying, hey, Moses, uh, you're a prophet, really important guy, father of the nation, nation Israel. But guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna raise up another prophet like you and I'm gonna put my words in his mouth. Now, hey, Moses, guess what? Listen to him. That, that, that's what's on the heart of the writer of Hebrews. He's saying, hey, 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 hey. There's one greater than Moses. All along, we were told there was gonna be one greater than Moses, and the one greater than Moses is Jesus Christ. And so isn't it amazing that these people who are under pressure by the Judaizers around them saying, okay, you can have your Jesus, but add the law of Moses. You can have your Jesus, but, but it's, 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 there's still this unfinished, continual business going on. No, no. Um, it, it, it's, it's Christ. It's, it's Christ. You know, Moses led people out of slavery and captivity toward the promised land. What did Jesus do? He led a people out of slavery and captivity toward the land of promise. I mean, and, and that's why, you know, in that Deuteronomy passage I read you, it's, it's, it's God saying, hey, there's gonna be a prophet like you. There's gonna be somebody like you. That's where we get a type of Christ. If you've heard that kind of terminology before, a type of Christ, it's when the Bible invites us to think of a, of a central redemptive character that way. We're invited to think of Moses as a type of Christ. We go, oh, what did Moses do? Wow. Well, there was an enslaved people and God raised up a deliverer and he took those enslaved people and he delivered them and got them out of captivity, no longer captive. He brought them into freedom. Uh, and now they're worshiping God and he brings them up to the land of promise. I mean, we're supposed to go, hmm, that sounds a lot like Jesus. And by the way, um, you, you know the story of Moses. Uh, um, we won't turn to it, but um, um, Pharaoh goes, uh, uh, there's a new Pharaoh that didn't remember Joseph. Okay, so when Joseph was on the scene, great. But a new Pharaoh shows up and he goes, you know what? These uh, <clears throat> uh, Hebrews are getting to be uh, quite numerous, and uh, they're so numerous that uh, they could overtake us if we're not careful in a generation or two. So they come up with a plan. They say, hey, midwives, when these Hebrew ladies have their babies, go ahead and kill them if they're a boy. Let the girls live, but kill the boys. And um, that doesn't work. You know why? Because the midwives, they're like, we're not gonna kill these babies. It's a cute little baby. They're midwives. The midwives wouldn't do it. And so they get in trouble and they say, hey, midwives, why aren't you killing these Hebrew babies? And they've got a great answer. Do you know what it is? I love this. It's one of my favorite funny things in the Bible. They say, 
These Hebrew women, they're vigorous. They're vigorous. That's the word. They're not like, they're not like uh, Egyptian women. The Hebrew women, they're vigorous. I mean, when, when, they, when it's time for the baby to come, ba-boom. They just have it, you know? Boom. You know, it's like, get the midwife. Boom. It's already over. Uh, that's their answer. Don't you love that? <laughs> the Hebrew women are vigorous. Uh, tough, tough gals. Um, and, and so they come up with another plan. They say, okay, if the Hebrew women are vigorous and they're still having these sons, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take all the baby male boys and we're going to throw them in the Nile and the, the crocs will eat them. And that's what happened. Now, Moses' parents, they hide their kid for three months. And uh, they finally end up putting them in a little basket and they put some tire on the bottom and they float them down the river and it floats down to Pharaoh's uh, area and Pharaoh's daughter sees and uh, Pharaoh's daughter takes and adopts the baby into her household and that's how Moses gets into Pharaoh's household. That's the story. Um, so think about that. Um, there was even a threat to Moses' existence as a baby just like Jesus' existence as a baby. Um, and uh, both mediated a covenant between God and his people, Moses and Jesus. And notice this odd item too, ladies and gentlemen. Look at verse um, 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, be very careful, ladies and gentlemen. I know that all of your children are gorgeous and above average, every single one of them. Um, but uh, I, I, let's refer to the theological wisdom of the, of the Seinfeld show. Not all babies are gorgeous. Uh, I know they are to you, but uh, you know every time you every time somebody has a, a baby, uh, that you get a picture uh, in an email or on, on online somewhere in social media, and it's a, a blue cocoon with a squishy head. And uh, you know, hate to tell everybody, but they all look exactly the same. Um, but uh, so when you look at this, you go, "Oh well, they hid it. They hid him because he was beautiful, uh, like all parents." You know, the beautiful child. Oh, he's so beautiful, we can't do it. And, and that, that, was, that's, that can't be it, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is highly debated, by the way. I mean, you know, John, Calvin thinks that, that by putting, uh, putting him in a basket and floating him down the river, they broke their faithfulness. I, I couldn't disagree with that more. I'm thinking, ladies and gentlemen, as I, as I read this passage and I've studied it, that they knew that there was something uh, significant about this child within God's plan. It's not just our baby's so gorgeous. It would a shame to throw it to crocodiles over all these other people who think their baby's gorgeous. They knew there was something uh, significant about this child. In fact, um, um, uh, yeah, check this in... in um, in Numbers 26, we're told their names. Uh, the name of uh, Amram's wife, that's the dad. That's Moses' dad, Amram. Uh, Jochebed is the, is the wife, uh, the daughter of Levi. Levi. She bore uh, 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 to Amram, Amram Aaron, 
Moses and Miriam. Well, giant names. I think God had a plan for those people, don't you? Giant names in the theater of redemption. Um, it makes sense that God would have communicated something to them about the significance of that baby in particular. After all, they're being commended, not criticized in Hebrews 11. They're being commended. Um, and uh, as a side note, Josephus, the, the great historian, um, he reports that they saw a vision. That's extra biblical, but it would not be far-fetched, that they knew there was something redemptively significant about this child. Okay, all that to say, and to our sermon point, uh, an atmosphere of animated faith. Here's what I mean by that. It is to say that God was and is above the circumstances. They lived in some hard circumstances. I mean, can you imagine everyone you know who just had a baby, having it snatched from them and having that baby thrown into the Nile? Can you imagine the wailing in the land, the, the heartache? I, it just would have, been, it would have been sickening to the entire Israelite community. It would have just been ghastly. Um, it, would, it would have been ghastly for any, any sensitive Egyptian soul. That's why the midwives couldn't go through with it. Um, but, but they are realizing that there's a God above the circumstances. And what they have done is set in motion the life of Moses in this atmosphere of of belief. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, to apply to you, you are no fool to talk to your own soul. Do you know that? You're no fool to talk to your own soul. You know, I do it with myself in music all the time out there. Uh, I even write it on top of my music sometimes. I'll I'll be like, I'll write, keep a cool head, Jim. (laughs) I just write things. I know know I'll freak out at verse three on the second song. I'm like, chill, buddy. I write myself notes. Uh, it's okay, man. You, you can do this. Don't freak out. I'll write a little thing about what's coming. It just helps me through. But ladies and gentlemen, don't you know that you can do that to your soul? When, when, when you're in heartache, when you're in duress, when you don't know what to do, you can say, soul, God is above the circumstances. God is above these things. God is not surprised by these things. Um, uh, in the darkest hour, you can say, God is not in doubt about any of this. He's bigger than all these things. And he's the one who wrote the play. Uh, I'm a player in the play. He's the one who wrote the play. In that is great rest, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Let me read you. This is from the New Living Translation, Romans 8, 28. I think it's a fresh take for you. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose for them. Isn't that a refreshing rendering? God has a purpose for you. He's got the, he's got the, the plans and um, he's bigger than your circumstances. There's not only good around the corner, there's good now. He's working good now. All right, let's go to our next point. An attitude of audacious conviction. And what I mean by that is uh, Moses makes a brave choice. He's got uh, he, he, make, he makes a brave choice. Um, look at verse 24. Uh, it says, um, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, f- friends, there's a lot of things that could be said about Moses here. You know the story of how he has to make his escape from Egypt. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And he looks this way and that way. He can't, he can't stand it, beating a Hebrew slave because he knows he's Hebrew and he sees one of his people and he makes a decision 
And what he does is he intervenes, he kills that Egyptian. And uh, he's found out, and he knows he's found out, and he fears Pharaoh, and indeed, for a good reason, Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so he flees. 40 years later, God summons him to go back to Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of captivity. It's just an amazing story. And so regardless of any discussion of whether it was right or wrong to kill the Egyptian or whatever, that's not the point here. It's not what the the writer of Hebrews is is pointing out. Um, What he's pointing out is that Moses had to make an identification with one people or another. It was a very clear thing, right? Um, Am I gonna be an Egyptian and enjoy all the spoils of my position or... Am I going to identify myself fully with the Hebrew people, which would mean uh, a sacrifice that is quite hard to um, to fathom? You know, I suppose it would be something like um, one of the Trump children uh, going in and being the running mate to uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, that would probably uh, affect the families in a profound way, don't you think? That that would be felt deeply? I bet it would. Um, Moses makes a decision to leave Pharaoh's house and to associate himself fully with the Hebrew people. And think of it, ladies and gentlemen. Think of the luxury that he gave up. Think of the position, the reputation, the power, uh, the health care. Think of the prestige, the education, all that stuff he is giving up. And ladies and gentlemen, he was willing to choose his identity in God as foremost over everything. Um, application for your life. Our staff uh, reads a book. We have a book study. I think I've told you that. We, have a, we, have a, uh, we meet every Tuesday. And uh, so we'll have a book study. We'll work through a book together, read it, discuss it. Dr. Young leads it. I must tell you, it's always great. Always great. And Dr. Young does a great job. It's just great shepherding. Um, so we do that three times a month. And then the fourth one, we have a staff meeting, which is in the conference room where we're on the table and it's a real businessy, businessy thing. It's not a book study. But when we do our book study, we just move through books. Anyway, we're about to do a book called The Whole Christ. I may have mentioned that, W-H-O-L-E, The Whole Christ. And I'm not recommending it. It's about some kind of theological sticking point. May, may, may not be the best read for you, but um, the title is a good one, The Whole Christ. You don't just get to have part of the Christ. You don't get to have the the saving parts of the Christ. You have to have the rulership parts of the Christ. You have to have the whole Christ, his will for you, his will for the church, his will for you to be a part of the church, not as a little club, but as a part of the people he spilled his blood to win, assembled, worshiping together. Christ made the church. Christ is the head of the church. Um, And uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, we, we, we are to submit to the whole Christ. And so when we look at Moses, if you want to apply it to you, Matthew 19, 24 says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And you look at that and you go, okay, well, what's rich? I mean, everybody says the same thing. Well, that's not me. <laughs> I'm not rich. Uh, that guy's rich. You can always point to somebody who's, uh, that, now that guy's rich. Now that guy's got money. Uh, but why does it say that? Why does, and it's Jesus talking. He's taking the largest common item of the day, a camel, pretty big old thing, you know, and he's taking the smallest common uh, item of the day, uh, the eye of a needle, and he's saying, that big thing that you're all familiar with would be really hard to go through that little thing that you're all familiar with. Why is it so hard? It's the same 
It's the same decision that Noah has had to come to. Is Christ supreme over every affection? When you come to the cross, that's the transaction you make. You come to the cross empty-handed and you say, you know what? I'm just gonna take my whole life, everything about it, and I'm gonna surrender it. And you know, it's been wisely said that when you give yourself to Christ, you get yourself back. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You get yourself back better. You get yourself back with him now working in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. But it comes to that same decision, that gospel decision that Moses had to make. Uh, Am I going to submit all things, no matter how big or hard or glorious or luxurious, will I submit all things at the foot of the cross? All right, last point, an assertion of assured restitution. I'm trying to get a lot of A's and stuff going up there. So I I know that looks a little confusing, but uh, um, um, Moses is looking to reward, right? So let's look at it together. Uh, Look at verse 26. Uh, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, man, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you you look at the term, the reproach of Christ, uh, that doesn't look good on the Jesus brochure too much, does it? Uh, usually it's like, oh, come on in, man. Uh, oh, your life will be so much easier, and it's just so awesome in here, and just everything's awesome. <laughs> That's usually the presentation. Nobody says, hey, um, you're going to experience the reproach of Christ. Uh, come join a group of people who are laughed at by the culture. Oh, you, you want to be referred to as a moron? Well, then join us. Um, You want to be bullied a lot uh, by the culture at large and by scientists and media and stuff like that. They think that that you're opposed to science and all that. You want to be made fun of? Join us. Here's a word from the chief. You want to hear a word from the Christian chief? That would be Jesus. He says this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's Jesus talking to his disciples. Very expectantly, hey, you're blessed when these things are going to happen to you because they're going to happen to you. That's the chief. Hey, you want to hear what the press secretary says? That would be the apostle Paul. He he calls it in Galatians five eleven the offense of the cross. Yeah, the cross is offensive because what it says is you can't be good enough, you can't work hard enough. All you can do is surrender at the foot of this thing and trust that what was happening on that thing was done for you, not by you. Contributed not, not by you in any way, done for you from someone outside of you. That's an offense. That's what the offense of the cross is. That's why there's such reproach of Christ. Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Moses is looking forward to the reward now, that's not saying that he's earned anything. He's, it's saying that he's looking forward to the, the great, wonderful wealth and provision that God will give. Here's another word from the Christian chief. This is what Jesus says. Right after he talks about being persecuted, hey, you're gonna be persecuted, but you'll be blessed. He, he goes on to say this. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That's our word from our chief. That's what Moses was thinking about too. He's thinking, I'm gonna choose reproach. I'm gonna choose God's people because I belong with God's people. I'm gonna love and lead God's people, but I know that um, God himself awaits for me. 
That, that's, a, that's a greater treasure. It, it's, it's, it's a, isn't that something? The reproach of Christ is greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. It's not just like, okay, I'll suffer here for a while. The reproach of Christ is greater wealth than that other wealth. Is that profoundly gospel-esque? All right, I got a few verses to read. Actually, it's the same verse. Uh, Paul says this in Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, this is the ESV, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the ESV. Here's the New Living Translation. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. By the way, those are very sanitized for, uh, for the, the Christian reader. Here's the, here's the King James Version, uh, you know, toughen it out for Ron. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them as dung that I may win Christ. And that's sanitized too. It's not Martin Luthered out yet. All to say, ladies and gentlemen, that that's how you view your stuff. That's how you view ambition. Uh, that's how you view intellect. That's how you view things that give you power. You say, you know what, Lord, you've given them to me. I gladly surrender everything at the foot of the cross, knowing that I get myself back. I get you working in my life to make me the way you want me to be. And that points somewhere. It points ultimately to fulfillment in heaven in the presence of Jesus the Savior. That's a greater wealth than the dung, ladies and gentlemen. All right, last thing. Um, when I write a message, you know, it, it, takes, it takes six to nine hours to write a sermon. Uh, that that's, includes reading it and uh, writing it all out in an air rehearsal. Um, so six to nine hours, and when I do that, I, I always, it seems like I care, it's like I got a backpack on and I got some people in it. And uh, it's not a long list. It's not like I carry 87 people and I've got this you know, great, but people on my heart that week. And I can just tell you, people on my heart this week um, are some people who have made some bad decisions, really like destructive decisions. Um, oh, um, my assistant Jason is up in wherever he's from, uh, visiting his 83-year-old 83, a uh, staunchly unsaved grandmother who is in her last days. That's a tough thing, isn't it? Um, and uh, what about profoundly hard family things? What about men and women making bad marital spousal decisions? Um, how about a 20-something uh, in the hospital for a week because she can't breathe? A 20-something gasping for air. Uh, that's on my heart. Um, how about fear over the direction of the nation? You know, a lot of you fear that. That's on my heart. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? Tests of faith show God to be bigger than your circumstances. And that's my prayer for you. That's a blessing for you. That uh, your faith would be tested when it is tested, 
that um, it will show to you, show to your soul that God is bigger than your circumstances. I, I hope that's what you'll walk away with. I hope that it'll encourage you this week. And I hope, I hope that you'll talk to your own souls to, to that effect. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Let's close. Lord, um, we do come to you and um, submit to you all things in Jesus' name. We take our lives, we take our aspirations, we take our gifts, uh, we take the things that make us uh, secure, and uh, we throw them at your feet, and we, we joy to call them uh, as rubbish in comparison with the great wealth that is afforded us in Christ. Grow us up to that effect, Lord. Uh, make us men and women who yearn for you, yearn for gathering as a church, um, yearn for accountability. Uh, yearn for Christ's likeness. We pray this all for his name and in his glory. Amen. Thanks, everybody.